Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Paula Paul joins us from her lair in Charlotte, North Carolina in the United States. Paula is currently a distinguished engineer and owner of Grayshore Associates. Paula Paul, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, uh, software is a language. You know, we talk about languages all the time in software, and language is a form of communication. Code is typically not spoken, but it's written. And I think that one of the most important characteristics of maintainable software is that it should be readable so that you can really uh, look through the repo or the code base and uncover the intent. It should be well-structured. So that's probably the most important thing. And then, of course, the second most important thing would be having unit tests. Uh, The definition or the most widely accepted definition of legacy code is code without tests. And having those tests makes it maintainable because you can change it and then run the tests to make sure that it still functions. So legacy software is not just like older, 25, 20-year-old software, but I know you're using the uh, is that Michael Feathers mm-hmm. kind of approach to thinking about how it's w- without testing. So if someone's working in an environment where the code base has been around for 20 years, and there is a healthy amount of test coverage, but it maybe hasn't been touched in a long time and nobody uh, has really worked on it in many years because it's just running, it's doing its thing occasional, maybe little updates here and there, but how, what would you refer to that then as like a distinction between legacy and because it's probably not new code or how many minutes or hours or years does it take before new code or legacy code? That's a really interesting question because I do think most people think of legacy as old code and um, having been around long enough to have written a lot of code that's very old now, I do think that as long as it's functional and it has tests, it's not legacy. So maybe there is a better word. Uh, I do think that any code that's in production and serving its purpose reliably is very valuable. And, uh, you know, in fact, COBOL still runs quite a lot of uh, the banking systems in the world. So I I do think that the word legacy has maybe an overloaded meaning that people tend to think of it just as old code. Which kind of leads me into my next question related to what's your take on the metaphor technical debt? I hear a lot of different opinions about what that might mean. What's your kind of current take on it and has it changed over the years? Yeah, it definitely has. And um, I heard a great metaphor for technical debt recently that it's sort of like um, these two groups of students living in two different apartments and one group of students cleaned up the kitchen after every meal, like they did the dishes. And the other group of students never did the dishes. They just threw the dishes in the sink. And so the group that just threw the dishes in the sink to the point that they didn't have any clean dishes left is the metaphor for technical debt. Code is a living thing when it's in production. It's never finished. It lives in that if you don't clean the house as you go, you wind up with the sink full of dishes to the point that you might not have any clean dishes someday. <laughs> so I don't know if that helps, but that's my favorite new metaphor for technical debt. What about for those 
students in college right now, they're sharing a space together and they're not cleaning their dishes, but they've agreed that they're going to do it at least once a week. Is that a form of kind of offset or do you feel like it's the regular regular rhythm that gets baked into a development team's process versus like throwing it on like a backlog? Okay, at some point we'll take care of that someday maybe. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, human beings are optimistic by nature and I do think that throwing it in the backlog and saying we'll get there someday or even like a lot of organizations will say, well, we're going to reserve 20% for technical debt for doing the dishes. We're going to reserve a day, day a week. What I see a lot is that other priorities often come up and that it's much too easy to deprioritize doing the dishes because it's hard to get you know, the organization to really feel the pain of not having any clean dishes in technology. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. And it, one of my favorite sayings is the technology is the easy part, getting people to understand the consequences of building technology is, is a challenge. Thinking a little bit about that, where, you know, you mentioned like reserving a certain amount of time to take care of like cleanup, refactoring type tasks that a software project needs becomes like, okay, we'll try to reserve, you know, 20% of our time for that. But then, but something else you've already committed, also committed to starts to run long. Maybe it took a couple extra, some extra hours went into that. And then by the time you get to the end of the week or whatever time of the week that or month that you would work on those things, you're kind of feeling a little exhausted, right? And you're like, well, what do we need to do? I don't want to do that right now. You know? So like, what else could I go do? Because this doesn't feel as valuable at the moment. Right. And so it's like, or it's like, where, where, where did I last leave off of that? It reminds me a little bit of like over the years with my own team where we've, you know, we've always been like, Oh, well, 80% of our time will be spent working on client work. 20% will be like on professional development. Sounds great on paper, but like actually consistently having people, not that we haven't like planned for it, but it's been difficult for to, for team members to, be in a good state to like, okay, now I can be intentional and I'm going to spend some time learning some new stuff or what have you, or go experiment with things, or in this case, maybe deal with some technical debt. Uh, why do you think that that happens so often? Yeah, yeah, that is a great point. And I do think people underestimate the cost, the emotional and mental cost of context switching. So if I'm working on a feature, I'm hammering that out and my, my brain is in that feature and in that code and I see that code and then I'm supposed to suddenly context switch and do technical debt in some part of the code that I probably haven't seen for weeks or maybe months or years. And there's a big cost of getting your brain out of the feature that you're working on and into technical debt or into learning a new uh, platform or a new skill or a new language. And I think that cost of context switching is underestimated. You know, thinking a little further on this, like the, the idea around, you know, developers, like that's context switching or getting a little, you know, feature thing, switching from that over to work on some other area of the code base. And then I've, I, you know, I've talked to many people, they're like, well, that makes sense. But also when you're working on something, clean up as you go, like follow like the scout rule, right? And do you think that's an easier thing for developers and teams to kind of approach or at least pat themselves on the back a little bit more? Like we're taking care of these little small things, but maybe we're kind of offsetting like the, the bigger challenges that ahead of ourselves. Do you feel like that's been something you've been able to notice over the years? I, I do think that cleaning as you go is more efficient because it involves less context switching. And then um, as a, as an engineer, 
matures or goes through their career, you can say, well, I'm going to clean this particular thing as I go. But now it's become this big rabbit hole of, oh my gosh, this is going to take another week just to clean up this thing. And number one, allowing engineers to raise that up as a need and then working, you know, maybe pairing on how should we approach it? Should we break it into another story? I I think that we need a little more uh, flexibility and maturity around the importance of cleaning as you go and how to do that. And something I'm going to definitely want to dig into related to like what you, what you at Grayshore do, how do you in a consulting capacity when you're working with teams where they might be looking for you to do work, focus on problem X, right? And, and you're, you might have people on your team and their team may be working on problem X and it's like, you know, as you get further and further and you're like, Oh, this is bringing up problem Y and, you know, and Z that aren't necessarily the priorities that we got called in to assist with, but we're having to work around these other problems. Um, yet there's still a timeline and due date coming up or whatever. And you're like, well, how do I balance that? Have you found some effective ways to help highlight those concerns? So that's not the developers being like, I, I don't want to ask about it because I know that they're just going to tell me just to focus on the pushing ahead on X and we'll deal with that at some other future point. You know, what sort of, what sort of, for those listening that might be in that sort of scenario, what kind of advice could you offer them? So talking to a customer and a consulting engagement, uh, the first thing is that by the time they would call in a consultancy, they're in some kind of pain. They may have a capacity constraint or um, in many of my engagements through the years, it's a system that has served the business well for quite some time, but can no longer either be maintained to adapt to new business opportunities or to scale in the growth of the business are the most common pain points. So coming in to that business as a technology consultant, I always think, again, that the technology is usually the easiest part. You have to understand where the pain is coming from. And then many times the customer will have already formed an opinion about what the solution is. And that can be a challenge because they may say, well, let's just put this on a bigger EC2 instance or, you know, scale out the the SQL database or something. And and you may say, well, there's natural limits to most every architecture. And there are points in which you have to replatform an application. That can be really challenging to explain to a customer because we're surrounded by technology and it's always presented to everyone. Like everything is infinitely scalable and it's easy to just lift, you know, even the term lift and shift something into the cloud. But sometimes those things don't really solve the real problem. Can we just throw more CPUs at this problem and everything will just magically work? (laughs) (laughs) That's been, that's been, you know, tried and true approach since I was working on mainframes. Yeah. It does reach a natural limit though. You know, it's with the cloud and the availability of compute, there's a lot more hardware to be thrown at things. So it's, it's an interesting world. <laughs> I bet. You know, you know, thinking about the, as you've been around in the industry for a number of decades, do you feel like it's easier or more complicated for someone coming into the industry and wrapping their head around the infrastructure to not only just build an application that so you can do it on your laptop, right, but to actually deploy into to the cloud to this mysterious thing and understanding everything like do you feel like it's more or less complicated 
I think it's more complicated because there are more choices and there are more choices that are easily available. So again, like when I started, uh, mainframe computing was not easily available and it was incredibly expensive. And now I can sit at a, a $35 Raspberry Pi and spin up free compute and data capacity in, in clouds. So you now have all of these choices and I do think that coming into the industry, another kind of analogy that I've heard of is that the field of mathematics, say in the 1700s, was small enough that one person could kind of know most of the field of ma mathematics. But certainly by the 20th century, the field of mathematics is so broad that one person can't really be expert across the board in the entire field. So I think that computing... Uh, has come that way as well. And the challenges I see in a lot of organizations are kind of driven by technical decision-making processes and people haven't built up good technical decision-making processes. I hadn't really thought about the mathematics industry as it's, as a thing like that before, but was there such thing as like a full stack mathematician at one point? <laughs> and they're like, this is just too much for one person. Um, that's, it's interesting. I, I, yeah. I'm going to have to go do some more research on that. that, that, that I'm curious about that. Uh, all the things you take for granted when like, they're like, oh, that stuff's been around for, you know, centuries. So, but like what was those were all professions, right? So, yeah. yeah. Is there really such a thing anymore as a full stack developer? I don't think so. There's people that put it on their resume and um, <laughs> companies hiring for it, but I don't, it seems like a, what's a junior full stack developer look like? Like that sounds really like big shoes to fill. How many different things do you now have to know to be a full stack developer? <laughs> yeah. So I heard some people recently online talking about that. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I've always had this weird kind of like a, like we use it kind of now in my company because we're a consulting agency as well. Uh, because clients were using it and and but but more of it was driven by people coming into the like applying for jobs. We're like, no, I'm not just a back end. Don't pigeonhole me. I do front end as well. And we're like, well, we mainly need you to do back end. If you can do some front end, it's great. You know, but I'd rather just have someone that knows all of the browser quirks and mobile device quirks, they can focus their attention there and you can focus on just, you know, the business logic part of it. And, but there's people that are like, well, I feel like from like a career path perspective, they're like, I'm more valuable if I, if I'm keep my skills up across the full stack and because that's what other, you know, large companies are hiring for. But it's, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's just interesting how I have some skepticism about that. Yet I feel like I, I have had to kind of concede to some degree to be like, well, I can have a strong opinion about this, but I also have to understand that like there's people's careers at play and how they're thinking about wanting to not get too far away from certain areas of the stuff. And despite maybe that not being everything that they get to do, you know, all the time, like you may not do a feature, the full thing, you got to work with your team. Multiple people are going to be part, be part of that process to build, you know, get that output. Yeah. Yeah, and pair programming helps with some of that. That like I do, I'm I'm very, you know, fond of being a generalist that learns quickly, and then you take those core skills in engineering and logic and design, and then you you know apply them or adapt them to the different stacks that you're working in. But there are some core skills that translate, like design or you know data structures or databases. 
So it's it's just sort of interesting to think about. Does that make you a full stack engineer, or even just provisioning cloud resources with something like Terraform? You know, do you really? You know, I don't know. It's it's sort of an interesting conundrum. I, I do value someone's ability to learn quickly and just um, become fearless with technology. Yeah, don't, don't want to um, stand in the way of that for sure either. It's a, it's, but it's it feels like it's more complicated to me as well. And I haven't been in the industry a lot um, less than you have, and so. I just very, feel very intimidated on behalf of people coming in the industry. I'm like, well, how do you wrap your head around all this stuff? Or maybe I'm getting to a certain point where I'm like, okay, I know that I can't learn everything, so I'm going to focus on these few areas and just try to get deeper in those areas. How, how have you kind of approached that over the course of your career? Have you, do you feel like you were specialist? Do you, do you Have you ebb and flowed between specialist and, dare I say, generalist in some capacity? Um, I think I've always taken the approach of applied computing, right? That I, it was uh, the problem at hand or the product at hand. And while I was in that problem or product, I became very deep in it, in the aspects of how it was built. So I, I do consider myself an engineer and it's like, okay, do I need to build a car or do I need to build a bicycle or do I need to build a, an airplane? And then what are the tools that I need in order to build that? So I am one of those people that's very fearless about technology and I can't necessarily just say, well, I'm going to sit down and work through these tutorials right now. I'll say, Oh, I'm going to build this application and this particular, like a graph database. I'm working with graph databases right now. This particular technology is well suited for the engineering problem at hand. Um, and that's like the toolbox just gets bigger and bigger the longer you're in it. And um, the best way to learn is to make mistakes. So, yeah. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. You know, we talk a lot about the importance of automated testing in the industry and try to think about, you know, code to test ratios and things like that we might, you know, cover. And then there's end to end testing. Have you ever seen a scenario where there's been too much testing? Maybe too much of the wrong kind, right? If you think of the, the classic test pyramid where the base is the unit tests and you might have more unit tests than anything else, then there's kind of contract and at the very tip is maybe uh, exploratory testing or, or manual experience testing. And I've seen situations where there was way too much emphasis on the manual experience testing. By the time you're in that aspect of the application, if you prioritize that over having good unit tests, it's, it's an inverted pyramid. How do you distinguish between what is a meaningful test and a and, and something that may not be that valuable to have be part of the test suite? Yeah, uh, that's a great question because I, 
if a unit test fails, I'm always, uh, the first thing I always wonder is, did the test fail or did the code fail? Because it's all code. And I think a meaningful test is something that helps with the maintainability of the code. It's not just for the sake of testing a particular piece of logic. And I know that might be hard to define. <laughs> it's true. You mentioned like that when like a, if when a test or a couple of tests in your sweep start failing, uh, and then if your initial reaction is, oh, did I break something in the code or is the test broken? And you're in this weird thing where you start having a less real confidence somewhere, right? And as you said that, I was like, I literally had a conversation late yesterday with a developer on my team who was working through. He's like, oh, I gotta, I have to fix the test now. And I was like, it's an interesting way to phrase it in a way of thinking. I'm like, there's nothing, nothing, nothing inherently wrong with that. But I was like, is the code right though? Like, how do you know the code's right? So, how have you helped make sense of that sort of like approach over the years? If we if we have this agile discipline of stories that are kind of bite-sized deliverables, you have to pop up to the feature and say, what is the feature that we're enabling here? And then you might have to examine the stories that went into comprising that feature. Because if you're adding a story or maybe you're modifying one of the pieces of that feature, you're, you're changing the shape of that feature so it could very well be that changing the shape of that feature now requires revisiting the tests. And I would say that it might be if it, it's a if it's a change to a, an existing code base that does have pretty good test coverage. If it's a pretty significant change, like it's extending a feature in a new way, or maybe adding um, new like top to bottom interfaces and data, I would probably um, during the desk check or during even the kind of refinement of the story, want to pop up to the feature level and look at definition of done around the feature. That's some good advice there. Let's also take a moment to plug your business, Grayshore. Can you tell us a little bit more about the types of challenges that you're, you and your team are helping organizations kind of navigate? Sure. Uh, and again, it's it's a, mostly um, people who contact us have some sort of either a capacity issue or a, a scalability issue or code that is too brittle to be extended to meet new market opportunities. On the other end, we actually have had uh, opportunities to work with startup founders who have a great idea but don't have a technology staff. And we build the first slice of this application for them so that they can go out and get funding. So I would say the core of Grayshore is a holistic agile delivery, inclusive of product design, you know, user research through engineering and delivery. And it's um, focused in cloud. So we, we you know, do cloud deployment and have done work in, in AWS, GCP and, and Azure at this point. But uh, I think one of the things that we really like to do is work as a team and then help enable organizations to go on that agile journey with us. Nice. You know, in being in the consulting world, 
um, and myself as, as well. Do you find, for people coming into the industry, we bring interns in almost every quarter um, and my team. And one of the conversations I have with like aspire, you know, these people might, they might've gone through boot camp, what have you for a while. And like they're, and so oftentimes they're going through a career change as well. And some of those are some, typically some of my favorite junior developers are ones that like had five, 10 years of experience doing something completely different. And they're like, I want, I think I could do this. And like, I knew someone that said I actually should do it. I'm going to go figure this out. And so and there's a, I always love getting to, you know, getting to like see their, their journey through that. And then like, literally we had uh, this last week, a couple interns. One of them was like a chef at a famous restaurant in town in my, in, in Portland, Oregon. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's you. Why the switch? Like that was your whole career. And he's like, just need a different type of uh, career environment where I don't go home thinking about my work all the time. And I'm like, I don't know that software engineering is going to uh, be that, but uh, there's a lot of other things that they've, they're, they're hoping to accomplish because of that. But the, uh, I, I'm curious, you know, but one of the things I kind of circling back to it, you know, the consulting side was one of the things I often encourage them to think about because it's like, well, you're coming into the software industry and there's kind of like, it's not there's just two tracks. I might be a little broadly speaking, but there's the consulting track where you might work in the agency consultancy world where you're working on with client, lots of variety of clients over a period of time, very different problems. And that's the path that I've been primarily taking in my career. And there's people that go down the product path where they go work at a you know startup or a product company. And, and that's, and, and I'm, the other thing I always remind them as well is like, rarely do you have to be the, the team that starts the first part of line of code, right? Like that, that occasionally that happens in your career, but more often than not, you're going to join an organization that's already invested into something. And, and that's why I have a podcast called maintainable. It's about the long-term, you know, things, the impacts of those early decisions. So I always try to encourage them to think about those two paths. Do you have a strong opinion about how you would like typically advise someone coming in the industry to like, oh, you should go definitely go down consulting for at least some period of time or definitely go down the startup or path or go work for a product company and, and then and just dig into like one software application for a number of years. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And I think it is uh, the, the typical consulting answer to everything is it depends. But I do think that, um, yeah, I've I've worked in consultancies and I've worked in uh, corporate IT, which might even be like another choice. Um, and then I've worked in smaller um, product companies or larger product companies, actually IBM. I wrote program products for IBM as my first job. So I think that coming out of college and technology these days, probably the, the ways to continue your learning and growth would be either a, a startup or consultancy. Consultancies, uh, I worked for ThoughtWorks, which is an amazing consultancy, and they have programs for uh, onboarding new developers or career changers, as sort of an internal boot camp. And, and indeed, even when I took my first job at IBM, they sent me off to weeks and weeks of uh, engineering training because the systems were unique to IBM. I do think that that's lost in the current day, but I see like internships and, and things like that addressing that. And then I'll, I'll plug uh, an organization that I'm really fond of and a, a good friend of the founder and CEO. Uh, the organization's called Tech Talent South. So they will take career changers or they'll work with veterans or people out of college, but not in computer science discipline. And they'll put them through a boot camp, but then um, stage them into 
organizations. So my ideal engagement as a consultancy is the consultancy uh, comes in and builds the framework and the foundations of the product or evolves it or replatforms it. But along the way, we bring contract to hire staff from Tech Talent South into the engagement so that we can pair with them. So it's another level of on-the-job training. And then when it's time for the consultancy to exit, you know, you, you have a, a fixed engagement, you know, six months, nine months. And when we would exit, we would leave behind a staff of people who can actually maintain and take the product forward. Um, we don't see that a lot in the industry either, but I really think that's the best way to get into the business is by on-the-job training with senior people. And a lot of organizations don't have that luxury, but consultancies can do it in their customers. Yeah. As a, as a consultant, can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. So as, as a consultant, I've had sadness, I guess, when you, you go into a, a customer and you build something really awesome that's you know, cloud-based, modern stack, modern approaches, but then the customer has never had time to come on the journey with you because they're, they're too busy keeping the lights on. And then you're faced with this hard choice of leaving something behind and worrying about, can it move forward? Have you ever felt that way or had those experiences? <laughs> Definitely. Um, it, it's always interesting because <clears throat> we've, a lot of the work that we've done, we come in and there's, it's usually we don't, I'm trying to think if I could get like a good ratio. I feel like I should know this, but I'd say about 50, 60% of the time, there's not like an internal engineering team for that company. They might've gone through previous consultancies. So they're just like, you know, when we're done with our engagement, it's usually because we've outgrown them or they've outgrown us into some capacity where they're like, okay, we need to ramp up more than we could ramp up or they want to like start hiring their own internal employees. So, so similar to what you're saying, then you're kind of like, okay, is there still going to be an ongoing thing here? Um, or, you know, another aspect is like our primary contact might at that company may leave. It's probably another really common scenario where things start to like having more, say, advocates for us on the client side to like, you know, keep working with us versus like, why would we do that? Or when we can just hire someone and, um, and 10 time zones away for a far lower hourly rate or something. So typically the things that move beyond us it's usually like price eventually becomes a thing where we're we need to keep increasing our rates every year you know or so because our salaries are going up and then but then we're like well we're four more times in that company in east europe you know and like how do we sell them on our value that being as four times as valuable you know when, when they're just looking at the hourly rate or something like that so that's there's a couple of complexities there but there's definitely been a handful of projects that you know we had to like walk away from and being like i really feel like we could have done so much more for them and and i hope that they get to do that at some point but we don't get to always make those decisions i suppose yeah and that's like i do think that's an aspect of maintainability is if a consultancy comes in and delivers something that you know is is a modern tech stack cloud native are the people in place are the people in place for the maintainability that's needed and i, I would love to solve that problem by bringing those contract to hire folks in during the engagement so they we could pair with them because it, it's a given as a consultancy that you're you're only there for a fixed period of time that I hate to leave before I know that the thing can actually be maintained 
No, I think that shows a, a lot of uh, pride in your work and, and, and care about the I think that one of the other things that we've struggled with is, is when they come to us and it feels like it's too late and we're like, ah, you probably need to call a team like us like three years ago, you know, <laughs> and usually those in those types of virus, like the, the, this, the internal, like when they lose key staff or something. And so it's very reactive and they're like, we don't know what, you know, we've had some new people come in and they don't, and like, we had this one person that knew everything and then they left and then the new people haven't really been able to wrap their head around it. And then they've just kind of, or everybody thought that earlier amazing developer was this amazing developer. And then they left and then the other people were like, I don't know how to make sense of this. And they're like, well, that not necessarily speaks well to that previous developer's skill set necessarily. Like, like, well, they didn't write a lot of tests, you know, but from the product team, we're like, they were super responsive. They fixed everything and they, they, they could do a quick fix everything really quickly. But then you're like, oh, they didn't write tests. They didn't write any documentation. It just like, yeah, it was all in their head and they could be a really good firefighter for you in that scenario. But it was not something that the knowledge and context of everything in the application could be transferred to other people very well, or people could make sense of it later and you're like and so they, they're like why can't it be like when so-and-so used to be here and i'm like that was chaos but you don't know that because you didn't they didn't weren't they weren't working with anyone else that was kind of like raising a flag being like hey this this is actually kind of like a problem here because someone was a hero for too long and then can no longer be the hero yep all of that is again the technology is the easy part you know it's it's very easy to find people who will just hammer out some code that looks like it works but it's very hard to have a, a good feeling of how maintainable, how operable is this? Is it observable? Like, how would I know if it's under duress due to scale? Um, those are the things that it's very difficult to demonstrate to people. And that, that those are the things that will just kill the, kill the business, kill the application, kill the, you know, the revenue opportunity or the service opportunity. We'll be back with our interview with Paula in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now let's get back to our interview with Paula Paul. Have you ever been in a scenario where you come into an organization where they've had some challenges like that and it doesn't work out because you're not able to make enough enough of an improvement because maybe one of the problems is actually the, the technical leadership has a certain culture that they've, or at least certain approach that they've taken and you don't necessarily want to th- throw them under the bus a little bit. And, you know, when you're like, well, there's some problems here and I think, Kind of, or so. Have you been in that type of scenario before? Um, I I have a track record of certainly working in organizations that are having pain, and like a lot of times, the pain is either originated by or uh, fueled by challenges in technical decision making. And I have a track record of delivering value, you know, software to production because I I think if you're contracting. If you don't deliver meaningful capabilities to production, you haven't really delivered any value. You've just delivered a bunch of code. So I have a track record of delivery. 
and it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> There's there does take a lot of uh, you know I would say candid discussions, crucial conversations, which is a, a great book, and then really helping people understand the difference between technical and adaptive issues. So a technical issue is something you could solve with technology. An adaptive issue is, you know, the product executive isn't expressing needs in a way that's reasonable for delivery. And maybe the technology executive is not admitting real capacity constraints and everything's the number one's priority. Those are, those are the hard conversations and but it, I always, I've come to think of it as those are the conversations that I now need to have and be able to have in order to do what I love to do, which is build and deliver the technology. So I like that, um, you know, you, the delineation between technical and adaptive decision making. Is there, are there any good resources that you could recommend to myself and uh, our audience on how to like kind of like learn a little bit more about what the distinction between those two are. Yeah. Yeah. One of the best books that I've read that's helped me so much in this is called the practice of adaptive leadership. Uh, It's by uh, an author named Heifetz who there is a really, then there's exercises in the book and it's like so, so applicable to technology consulting because a lot of these organizations are struggling with changes in their market or changes of, scale and growth demands. And a lot of those changes, and indeed, like maybe that's what's pushing them to move to the cloud. Moving to the cloud or running software in the cloud is not hard. It's bringing your existing organization into that way of working is the hard part. And that's the adaptive challenge. So yeah, I highly recommend, I recommend that book to everyone in consulting (laughs) because again, it's the technology is the easy part. Adaptive uh, issues are the, the art, if you will. Excellent. I will definitely include links to the, the, that book. And you think you mentioned crucial conversations a little bit ago as well. Yeah. I always say, I wish I'd taken more psychology courses in my software engineering. (laughs) There is, it's interesting. Like so many of the, the books that I find most valuable for me over the years have been ones that are way more around, one is as someone in a leadership position of like thinking about how I prioritize things and how I just organize my work so I can stay focused to some degree. Because when you don't have a boss, you have to kind of like rely on yourself to be your own boss. And then the other aspect being how to interact with different types of people coming from different perspectives, having empathy for everybody, especially the previous developers on projects that we may inherit and work on. You know, I think that's like trying to understand, you know, I'm not trying to get into a scenario where we want to like point fingers at the past developers because that's not gonna that's not productive or helpful or even our past selves and be like why did I do this like don't beat yourself up because you did the best you could with the you know the constraints you had at that time so yep prime directive <laughs> so I'm curious in the you know I talked to a lot of people in the product world where they might be measuring the output throughput deliver of their delivery team from the software team. Um, and they will have different metrics that they're looking at. What sort of metrics have you found in the consulting world that can be helpful to either work with, you know, your clients on, or even just internally and how you approach that type of thing? Sure. And I, I've been in lots and lots of organizations that are trying to measure engineering velocity. And I, I like to say that the path to production starts way before a commit. 
the path to production starts when there's an expression of the need of a feature and then the definition of done and the prioritization and grooming of that feature into stories that can be engineered. So when people try to talk about engineering velocity, I try to steer them towards the end-to-end process of delivery time, including the upfront you know, feature um, refinement, because a, a lot of times the friction comes in feature refinement and prioritization. Another one of the things I like to ask people is, or do you find yourself more often on team refactor or team rewrite? Hmm. I have another uh, option that I would say team replatform. And that was one of our large engagements uh, through the COVID times. An application already existed, but it would not scale. And there were lots of reasons for that. And it had to be global. It had to be extremely scalable. And we replatformed it, which involved creating some new services, but also adopting and, and refactoring some existing code in the client. And I would say most of the client anxiety that I see from technology leaders is you can't just rewrite this application. We've sunk years and years into it and sunk costs and so forth. And I'm like, well, we're not rewriting it. We're replatforming it. And there's a difference in the analogy there I use is um, it may have taken three years for Jules Verne to write 20,000 leagues under the sea in the original French, but it only takes maybe a, several months to translate it to English. So in a replatform, you've already got the characters and the plot of the application, and you merely need to translate it to a modern tech stack, which may involve some code reuse or uh, refactoring or restructuring. It's almost never ideal to completely rewrite something and there are many, many times now with, especially with scalability issues that refactoring in an existing architecture doesn't get you the scalability. You have to replatform it. So if you have, let's say, a somewhat modern web application with an API and you decide that you want to, would you consider a replatform if you're going to be like, okay, we're going to take the API and like kind of rebuild it in a different programming language or something and or take advantage of some serverless service service in AWS or something like that is that kind of a consider replatform versus like a a refactor of that yeah i do i do think when you're changing a fundamental architecture piece it's like a replatform you're uh, maybe changing out a monolithic sql server database for multiple smaller services with no sql backends and maybe introducing messaging to keep things consistent, but the application feature, the feature level work is the same, maybe even uh, reusing a lot or some of the interface that the end users are used to. I, I think that if something's got a reasonable API, you know, it's, it's pretty quick sometimes to replatform backend capabilities and data. Nice. All right, a couple of quick last questions for you, Paula. Is there a non-software, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers in, in the industry? It, it's related, but City of Ember. <laughs> and because we've been talking about legacy and refactoring and replatforming, it's the story of you know, people who 
rely on a system that they no longer understand and how they evolve to come back to understand it. Interesting. I'll definitely check that out and include that for everybody in the show notes. And where can listeners best follow, you know, your thoughts and ruminations on software development online? Uh, I do write for Medium uh, in a publication called Simply Technology and other other wonderful authors have posted some things there as well. Excellent. I'll definitely include links to that as well in the show notes for everybody. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Paula. Thank you so much for talking shop. Thank you for having me. It was a great discussion. Mm-hmm.